0: Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called David McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: It's podcast time. John is actually over here. He's dressed as Black Rod, which is a a very bizarre thing in England. About it
2: sounds the, rock and roll, but it's
0: not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna talk about the Queen's platinum jubilee, monarchy, and colonialism. Well, we kinda of teased that last week, didn't we? Did we? Kind of tease. we did kind of tease
2: it. I actually got it wrong because when I was in London, I thought it was happening that weekend, but it's not. It just just, just hap- happened this just weekend. Happened.
0: And what we're gonna talk about is lots of people forget. And it's not just England, okay? So it's France, it's Spain, it's Netherlands, it's the Germans got in late. Yeah. Portuguese were there Portuguese, early, or yeah. very early doors
2: yeah. it's the idea the that Italians as well Italians, to, to, to a certain extent they were in yeah, Ethiopia Mickey, Mickey
0: the... Mouse Mickey Mouse calling the Italians yeah, the yeah, Abyssinia, yeah. Ethiopia and Libya yeah.
2: they were, were having a long lunch they we? were
0: having, <laughs> yeah, exactly and a bottle of Gavi to Gavi <laughs> yeah. that went on for a few hours but people were talking about monarchies right that we forget our Europeans have conveniently forgotten that monarchies sat on top of an imperial structure an imperialist and colonial structure that created empires, of which the pinnacle of those empires was the king and queen, whether it was Ferdinand and Isabella or Elizabeth I or, God forbid, William of Orange, you know, or or
2: any of the bourbon... Well, here we are down the Orange Lodge.
0: (laughs) Are any of the bourbon kings in France? What we're talking about is... An extraordinary legacy that the Europeans have left the world, largely the colonial world. Yeah. And if you're sitting in the Caribbean, or in Africa, or in India, or even, dare I say, in some parts of Ireland, if you still feel that way, yeah. and you're looking at... Or anywhere in the Commonwealth. Because
2: all of the Commonwealth are celebrating this...
0: Allegedly. Celebrating, yes. you know... inverted commas, uh, Betty, Betty Windsor's uh, longevity. And... You might think, wow, there is another story. And the other story is what actually happened in particularly the Caribbean. Let's take the Caribbean as an example, but all of Latin America as well. What actually happened during colonialism, during imperialism, and, and what the story is, and how and whether imperialism and colonialism actually was the secret ingredient to economic growth that actually the Europeans garnered so much from. So if you go to France, for example, and all the great monuments in France, mm. you think, who paid for these? Yes. You go yeah, to England, yeah, yeah. you think, who paid, like, who actually paid for all these great monuments? And what you see is those great monuments were paid off the backs of slaves. Well, you know, it's interesting that
2: the, one of the big hot debates in American politics at the moment is CRT, critical race theory. And should it be taught or not? I didn't know that. What's that all about? So CRT, it it kind of came out of the civil rights movement. And basically, it's looking at American society and institutions kind of through the lens of race, society and law and how all those interact. And it's become another one of those political hot potatoes between the Democrats and the Republicans, as you might imagine. But essentially, it's the story of America through the use of, of, of slaves. slavery.
0: Well, it's an amazing story. And we're gonna go and talk to Marla Ducaran in Trinidad about the Caribbean and America. Great. She's brilliant. But just just to give us a sense of it, right? If you look at the extraordinary slave trade, so what we forget, so you think of Jonathan Swift, right? Yes. And you think about the, the intellectualism of Jonathan Swift's Dublin, yeah. which in itself was originally a slave colony. By the Vikings, and then a colonial imperial capital for the sort of what I was just call look at the Cromwell's, you can Cromwell's, see that. yeah, I call them Cromwell's NCOs, basically a bunch yeah. of non-commissioned officers in a very violent army called yeah. the New Model Army, who after kicking the lumps out of the Paddies were given the country.
2: Yes, Okay. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But if you look at them, what actually sustained those guys and lots of their writing were tea and coffee houses. Right, so that was a huge, huge boom in the late 17th century, early 18th century. So you went with your mates to a tea and coffee house. But the problem with both tea and coffee is that... Starbucks, Starbucks. you mean. Starbucks. Starbucks for fellas with wigs, yeah. right? <laughs> fellas with tights and wigs and Starbucks ordering frappuccinos. But what the major drug that everyone wanted then wasn't coffee or tea, was sugar. Sugar yeah. was this incredibly addictive new commodity, right? And sugar had been a commodity that had been... Sugar cane had been grown in the Canary Islands by the Spaniards Mm. originally. But there was only very, very small quantities of it. And the Spaniards went into the Caribbean and the Spaniards were looking for El Dorado. They were looking for the city of gold. So they found El Dorado in Peru and in what's now Bolivia. And they found the plata, the silver, in Mexico. So the Spaniards got really bored of the Caribbean after about 100 years. They said, nothing here for us, right? Nothing here for us. There's loads of gold and silver down there, yeah. so we couldn't be ours." really. You know,
2: what about the beaches? They don't just hang out in the beaches they for a while. Know, they were the beaches,
0: smoking, <laughs> smoking reefer and whatever. So they gave up on this, and they ceded it to the Brits, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, right? Yeah. They said, you guys do what you want. To. And the Brits, of course, and the French arrived there. The Brits arrived first. And they thought, like, what do we do? These are mosquito-laden, unbelievably inclement places, full of diseases that we can't figure out. What are these things good for? And they realized, the Spaniards had originally realized, but then the Brits realized that these are incredibly brilliant for sugarcane.
2: Right, right? yeah.
0: And sugarcane was basically an addiction that was foisted on Europeans by the plantations, right? Now, the Europeans quite liked this, but this was a way of actually reducing the cost of sugar cane and getting into people in their coffee and their teas and whatever. And what the Brits figured out was sugar is the most expensive most lucrative crop, mm-hmm. more lucrative than cotton, right? Or tobacco. But it's unbelievably labor intensive, right? Yes. Yeah. You've ever seen what cutting sugar cane is like, right? Yeah, yeah. And then of course you have to boil the sugar, right? In this and, and 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 you have these huge huge industrial efforts, right? And they couldn't, of course, get people to do this because the labor was too hard. Yeah. So originally they wanted to settle like America and have settler families and bring them over. But they realized that nobody wants to settle there. So what did they do? They figured out we need to get labor from somewhere. Mm. And they created what's called the Atlantic Triangle. The Atlantic Triangle went from Bristol, mainly, in England, yeah. to what's now known as Sierra Leone, around there, okay, in West Africa. And they sold mainly muskets and silverware to African slave traders. African slave traders exchanged those muskets and silverware for slaves. The slaves went across the Atlantic to work. They the were fields. landed in Barbados, yeah. in Jamaica. And of course, in the biggest one was still a Spanish trading place, which was Havana. Huge slave trade. Right, right, yes. Very few slaves were landed in New Orleans, actually. Of all of the 16 million slaves they believe were taken from Africa, the vast majority went to Brazil. The second majority went to the Caribbean. And only a small minority went to America.
2: But didn't they move to America afterwards over the years? Over then? the years, but yes. in terms of yeah, direct yeah, yeah, land. Yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah. then they exchanged those people, the slaves, for sugar, which went back to England. Back to Ireland, where Jonathan Swift was having sugar in his tea in Dublin, yeah. contemplating all sorts of things. So it was this triangular trade that went on for two hundred years. But if you if you think about the backbreaking nature of the slave trade, that it was basically they grinded these people into into, and they used to call it seasoning. So seasoning was what they did, which is to break the slave in. So if you How survived, you so if you survived. The Atlantic crossing.
2: Yeah.
0: And one in seven was regarded as a reasonable uh, amount of slaves to lose. And one in four, this is if you look at the slave trading books, right? Right. One in four was a bit excessive, right? Right. So we're talking massive loss of life across the Atlantic. Imagine how terrified those slaves were when they arrived. They actually thought the white men were going to actually eat them. This is right. what they actually thought, if you look at it. Jesus. But they had this thing called seasoning. And seasoning was how you'd flavor the slave. And that meant you just beat them. You whipped them and you beat them until they were broken. So they would never, because of course, the proportion of white people to black people, there was always a tiny slave-owning population, yes. and a massive slave population.
2: Yes. Yeah, of course.
0: And in 1799, there was a slave rebellion in Haiti where the slaves rose up against their French overlords. Right, Because of Haiti was the jewel yeah, for the yeah. French crown. And they killed all the white people. And thereafter, the type of atrocities inflicted on the slaves went through the roof because the whites in Jamaica. Were freaked. and Yeah, and in Cuba and in Barbados were freaked out. And it's an appalling history. But what we forget is that the history of the Caribbean is the history of extreme violence perpetrated by people who looked like you and me. Yes against people and who, who look like our next guest
2: and 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 looked like the people who are there waving the Union jacks
0: right now right exactly now. and there is a great book and we're going to talk to Marla about this book by called Eric Williams who was the right. first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago called from Columbus to Castro a history of the Caribbean I'll just give you a quote from it okay and Williams says, right, at the simplest level, some have argues, most prominently Eric Williams, right? The slave trade's profits and exploitation, slave labor watered the garden of nascent capitalism, or to use another metaphor, fertilized the entire productive system of the country, that country being United UK. Kingdom, because the huge, huge money that came from that was the capital base that the United Kingdom used to launch the Industrial Revolution. Because without that money, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So the actual yeah, money used in the Industrial Revolution by the British banks was actually the product of slavery in these extraordinary slave colonies.
2: So so are you saying, does, does that mean that we wouldn't have had an Industrial Revolution? It or would it have been just very different? It industrial- would have been
0: def- different, it would have come later, and wouldn't have been. Yeah. Because basically what... what Really, really distinguished Britain from other European countries uh, during the Industrial Revolution was the availability of capital. Mm. So the Brits seemed to have been able to create a capitalist, a financial capitalist economy. So therefore, if you and I decided, well, the spinning Jenny, right? Let's figure that one out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what there was in London was financial capital available to the Northern. Inventors, because all the British inventors were from the north of England. Yeah, were from the south, right? Yeah, yeah. They were kind of lads, flat, flat cap lads from
2: Brunel and all those. Uh, guys. Yeah, they, I they, mean,
0: they were geniuses. The, they were geniuses, but the the point is, the capital that allowed them, or as Eric Williams says, fertilized
2: mm.
0: the subsequent industrial revolution, came largely from the slave colonies of the Caribbean, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. Yeah. So let's now go to the Caribbean and talk to Marla Dukaran about how this has impacted their development, their subsequent worldview, and this perennial question in economics. John, how do countries get rich and why do some countries stay poor? Many years ago, while I was doing some work with Marla Dukaran down in the Caribbean, she gave me a book by the first prime minister of Trinidad, a guy called Eric Williams. And the book is an economic history, a history, but with an economic slant to it, of the Caribbean called From Columbus to Castro. And it is an amazing, amazing book. It's the history of the Caribbean. Marla, I can see you there. How are you, darling? Lovely to see
3: you. Lovely to see you too, David. And no, I'm eating, eating, because it's mango season, eating mangoes in the water while you're oh. having a, a, a sea bath. You have to eat the mango in the water because then the little bit of saltiness from the salt water gets into the mango and it enhances the flavor of the mango. You have to do this. You guys have to come on. Beautiful, beautiful. (laughs) Marla,
0: next time I am perfecting my mango chewing uh, sort of look (laughs) as I sit being burnt raw in the Caribbean if I was, if it was the last time I was there, she was just laughing at me. I was kind of walking like a crab, like sideways, you know? Like, you got to get out of that son. Okay, Marta, tell us, what is the thesis, the Williams thesis of the history of the Caribbean from an economic perspective? Because lots and lots of people don't know it. Lots and lots of Europeans choose not to know it, given our complicity in the whole thing. Let's start at Columbus and let's get to, get to Castro.
3: Yeah, so it was really in the late 1400s, early 1500s that Columbus started to rediscover. And I say rediscover because, of course, we had indigenous people here in most of the islands in the Caribbean. They would have come from mainland Latin America and settled across these islands. So, of course, when the Spanish came with with their European diseases and European weapons and sophisticated weapons and so on, you know, a lot of these indigenous populations were largely enslaved and or wiped out, okay? There are some countries where there are small populations, but I guess they would be mixed now. But in Dominica, there's some, Trinidad, we have some. And then in the mainland countries like Suriname and Guyana and French Guyana, you do have indigenous populations. Belize as well. And then for a few hundred years, you then had the sugar industry, which was massive, thriving, lucrative, the largest industry I think the Caribbean ever had, even until now, except for offshore financial services, right? And of course the sugar industry was basically created by the European colonizers using slave labor and then indentured labor for a few hundred years, you know, until the early 1900s when we then started to become independent in this region. And then you had a transition away from agriculture into the service services sector.
0: Marla, let's go yeah, back. Let's sure. go back. Okay, because I, I don't think many people appreciate the extent, I mean... Williams's book is full of numbers, the amount of slaves who were taken yes. from Africa. The idea that there was this triangular trade from Britain and France, but let's say because of the English-speaking world, or English-speaking Caribbean, from Britain to West Africa, from West mm-hmm. Africa to the slave colonies of the Caribbean, and from the Caribbean mm-hmm. back to Britain. Like, just follow the trade and what was actually happening and how long was this going on, how many millions of people... You know, you and I read, I think, the Book of Night Women by Marlon James, which is oh, yes, an amazing yes. insight into the slave colony that was Jamaica in 1799, mm-hmm. around the time of the Haitian rebellion. So give me a feeling for that and, and how that, that infects and pollutes the Caribbean mind still.
3: Well, remember that when the colonizers came from various European countries, I mean, in Trinidad, for example, we were colonized by everybody. I read just this morning, somebody saying that Trinidad and Tobago was actually a social experiment because we were Spanish lawyers, mostly French people, or as they say, French Creole people, and then British, in, you know, institutions and leadership layered on top of that. So many countries were, except for Barbados, um, which was largely only British, but most countries in the Caribbean, everybody took their turn, you know, the Spanish, then the French, and then... The, Dutch and the British, you know, all took their day to fighting for for many of us. And why? Because it was so lucrative to have these new colonies so that you can exploit them. And that's an important thing to understand, because when you look at, you ask this question, you know, what causes some countries to be successful and others to fail? There's a book called Why Nations Fail that discusses just that. And what they are saying is that there are two kinds of countries when a country is born. There is your settler state, where people like like for America, for example, when people decided to go west and the pilgrims landed there. You know, they went there to settle, right? Because they wanted something different and they were being subjugated and so on, persecuted where they came from. But when people came to the Caribbean, when the the colonizers came to the Caribbean, they didn't come here to settle and to live here and to grow for generations in these countries. They came here for exploitation. And so there are two kinds of, of nations. There's settler and then there's extractive. And we... I mean, generally in the Caribbean, we consider the extractive colonies, the ones that have natural resources. So like Trinidad and Tobago has oil and gas, Guyana and Suriname have oil and gas, as well as diamonds and gold and everything, you name it, they have it. We think of those countries as extractive colonies or former colonies, but we were all extractive. And so the institutional constructs in an extractive country are not the same as a settler country. And so the colonizers came here and built an extractive colony where they can grow sugar using relatively free labor. I mean, the only cost they paid was to pay for the, either the slaves or the indentured workers, like my forefathers. And the rest of it was roughly free. And it was a labor-intensive industry. Sugarcane is a massively labor-intensive industry. It still is. And in this region, however, I mean, and I think in Brazil, they're largely automated and it flourished. This industry flourished. And one of the reasons why Castro became so powerful was because in his country, there was still so much inequality where, you know, the Americans used Cuba kind of like their Las Vegas, if you will.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. The gangsters and the Of
3: course. And the people of Cuba were banned from going to the best beaches and things like that. And so it was almost like colonialism and and that kind of subjugation and exploitation all over again. And so that's the history that we come from. It's a very violent, very exploitive and huge inequalities. And that's our history.
0: And in terms of, it's quite funny because there's always a contrast between the marketing blurb of the Caribbean. You know, sun, and mm-hmm. samba, and music, and all the good sun, stuff. Sun,
3: sun, sea, and sin.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the, you know, who doesn't want all of the above? I can do without the sun, but the rest I'm in for, okay? <laughs> right? But, <laughs> reverse sign me up for the rest of the stuff. But, but that idea of the darkness in the mm-hmm. Caribbean, the legacy of... The kind of brutality, and again, I come back to to novels more than historical fact, the brutality experienced by the people and the forefathers of the people is there all Mm -hmm. the time. When I'm talking to Caribbean people, I can really feel it.
3: Absolutely. It is there all the time. And each of us has a story from our grandparents or even parents. I mean, I will tell you that my parents, because of this indentureship that brought my great-grandparents to to Trinidad and Tobago, my parents were very poor. They went to school barefoot. my grandmother was beaten while she was in labor because she didn't finish cutting her section of the sugar cane, you know? And these are the, uh, yeah. And and the thing is, my forefathers chose to get on a boat in India, right? Yeah. Because they wanted to try something new because probably where they were, they were so poor anyway. So why not? What do I have to lose? Yeah. But when you think about even slavery, they didn't have a choice. So they, their history is even more brutal and even more violent. And do you know that trauma alters your DNA? It alters I've your DNA that. and it I've passes on. Yeah, and it passes on down generations. So we may not acknowledge it, but I think that all of us have this PTSD um, in our DNA because of what our forefathers went through. Now, I'm not saying that that's any... Reason to to give up, right? Um, you have to keep moving forward, and to me, the definition of progress is each generation is is better off than the one before and has more freedoms than the one before. So, you know, I don't by any means think that that we ought to allow this trauma of our history to stymie our efforts towards progress. But you can't deny it, and yes, we we at times don't want to acknowledge it, and it's painful to acknowledge. But, you know, Marlon James did a fabulous job in his, not just the Book of Night Woman, but even a brief history of seven killings, even though that was about Bob Marley. But, you know, you still got a, a tremendous flavor of, of how, you know, the CIA was involved and how, you know, even though we are small countries and you don't think of us as being, you know, able to support huge nations, but we did. You know, and our did. economies on the backs of all of our people, we did support massively rich nations in the, the global north, you
0: know. I mean, it's a, just by the way, if you do want to read Marlon James's books on a totalist side, what I love is the book vocab- of the bamba clat and the whole thing, these yeah. Jamaican <laughs> words, which are just so cool. They're just so but but I mean the, the book of night women is about slavery. And the, the Seven Killings is about the attempted assassination on Bob Marley in 1977 mm-hmm. at a time when the CIA on one side and the Russians on the other were interfering mm-hmm. in the Jamaican election because the Russians wanted to Cubanize Jamaica. And clearly the Americans were terrified of that. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fascinating book. But Marley, before we go, and because I, c- I can't wait to see you in Dawkey, I mean, I cannot wait to see you. We're going to explore these stories. One of the sessions you're doing in Dalky is is called Poverty and Progress Booms and Bust. Now, what fascinates me about this one is it touches on what we're talking about here. Let's go back to this idea of settler states and extractive Mm -hmm. states because the Mm -hmm. Irish history is, broadly speaking, a colonial one. Broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. even up until this weekend, we see our last weekend, the divisions between the colonized and the colonists in terms of what was happening in Irish history but that's an entirely different thing but explain to me what chance the extractive society has over the settler society looking in the next going forward a wee bit
3: well yeah that's a that's an important question because that's a question we all have to answer in this region right Because, you know, like I said, even though only a few of us with natural resources consider ourselves extractive colonies, in the end, we all were extractive. And it's only been about 50 to 60 years that we've been trying to rebuild, to build a future and to reform our institutions for the future that we want, as opposed to a colonizer. And I think what will really make the difference, David, is, you know, we have to engage in massive institutional reform that really makes our institutions, it rejects the history or the historical constructs that our institutions still manifest. And we have to build institutions that are purpose built for the future that we want. And I'll give you a, a small example of, of this Jamaica defaulted on its domestic. Sovereign debt twice. <laughs> it was so nice, we did it twice. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 20... <laughs> it's like me and John, the 20... <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere around 2012 or so. So they engaged in an IMF program. And coming out of this default, you had the private sector and the NGOs and the opposition and almost all these relevant stakeholders you can think of coming together to form this committee called the Economic Policy Oversight Committee, which exists still today. And I think that that's the kind of institutional construct we need, where you have a policy agenda that is agreed by consensus by all the stakeholders. You have an implementation timeline. And every quarter, this committee comes to the public and says, well, we were supposed to do this, 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 and this. And here's what we've achieved. Here's why we didn't achieve everything. And in in other words, that's just one example of a new institution that was born in Jamaica about 10 years ago that I feel is largely responsible for the most of the positive reforms that we've seen Jamaica implement in the last 10 years, which I think are underpinning its economic progress. Jamaica, just before the, the pandemic, recorded its lowest poverty rate ever in history and lowest unemployment rate ever in history. And yeah, and for a country like Jamaica, when you read Marlon James and you you understand just the hardship and how dire the situation was in Jamaica from a socioeconomic standpoint, and you realize that you can make this kind of progress in a decade, it gives me hope that all of us can reform our institutional structures to make them relevant and purpose-built for the future that we want. Marla, on that note, on that
0: upbeat note, you go, you've got to go and chew some mangoes apparently. John and I have got to go, <laughs> go and have a commoner garden, a cup of tea and I will see you in Docky in two weeks' time.
3: I can't wait. I can't wait. See you soon, David.
0: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash Acast.
2: Do you know, one of the interesting things that Marla was saying there was... About how trauma directly affects DNA of the people, like physical DNA of the people.
0: Like you pass it down, it becomes a characteristic. You're traumatizing. You, yeah, you're, tra- you, and, it's and you pass on. that trauma down. I, I'm,
2: I'm not sure how how that works, but certainly there is a psychological impact of trauma on a group of people that is then passed down, whether it's through DNA or through stories and stuff. Which, you know. As a result, then, that history then kind of repeats itself and... Or dominates. Or dominates. And and poverty, as you say, persists
0: It is interesting. There's there's a great study. There's a whole branch of sort of evolutionary study, you know, which is all about social or cultural evolution. Yeah. As you say, things that are passed down, they may well not necessarily be physical, Mm. but they are genetic, but they are inherited norms or customs, as you said. Yeah. Our traits, you're a collective our memory. That's... Yeah, and a collective memory. And that collective memory is, ironically, if you're from an imperialist country, right, your collective memory is the glory of your history. Yeah. If you're from a colonized country, your collective memory is the appallingness of the crimes committed against you. And that galvanizes you as a yes. nation. Yeah. And Ireland has been galvanized by that type of collective history which is Britain has been galvanized by a glorious imperial history that that was in some way a great time Mm. for them and everybody else, right? We, on the other hand, are much more like Caribbeans. Our collective story is one of being the underdog, being kicked around. And it definitely carries what what is interesting for me is that Ireland is one of the very few post-colonial countries, very, very few, that have actually got wealthy and got over this on an economic basis without having to have, let's say, oil or petrol, okay, or something like that, right? And it comes back to this, I think we conclude here, this basic idea that economics purports to be science, that if you superimpose upon country A or country B or village A or B a set of rules and regulations, all you have to do is abide by those rules and regulations and everything will work out. Yeah, but it's not like that.
2: It doesn't work like that. Because
0: economics is part of our social DNA. It's part of our history. It's part of who we are. Yeah. And the post-colonial country looks at capitalism in a very, very... Or through a very, very different lens to the country that has always been capitalist, but more importantly, has always been top dog. While I have you there, Doki Book Festival, What's Not to Love? One village, four days... Seventy-five events, a hundred speakers from all over the world, arts, science, culture, politics, economics, the whole lot. Check it all out at DokiBookFestival.org and you never know, we might all go for a pint.